Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, our first and second readings for this weekend beautifully sum up the church's classical attitude toward those in power. I've long argued that the most influential philosopher of the 19th century was not Karl Marx. We might think that. I think it was Friedrich Nietzsche. For this very influential and and quirky German thinker, power is the fundamental reality. Remember his idea of the will to power. The play of power becomes really the organizing dynamic of, of life. Most of what presents itself to us in the political, social, cultural, even interpersonal realms is really a disguised play of power. Who's up, who's down, who dominates, who's enslaved? Nietzsche felt that a a frank acknowledgement of this fact conduces toward the morality of what he called the ubermensch, right? The superman, the one who asserts his will to power over others. For Nietzsche, we're beyond good and evil, those kind of pseudo-objective qualities. What matters, finally, is the, is the will of the stronger. As I say, Nietzsche has proved remarkably influential in our times through the influence of thinkers as diverse as Heidegger, Sartre, Michel Foucault, who was all the rage when I was studying in France, maybe especially Ayn Rand, the novelist. Through all these people, the Nietzschean perspective has found its way into our consciousness. And all you got to do, any time of the day or night, go on the internet and listen especially to young people talk about life, talk about institutions, talk about uh, the political realm. What do you hear? A tendency to sniff out plays of power and domination. Right? Who's got the power? Who's wheeling it? Fairly or unfairly. They call it oppressive and domineering. Well, this, I think, is the influence of Nietzsche and Nietzsche's view of things. Okay, what about the Bible? It seems to me the Bible is not in sympathy with this kind of demonization of power. Or even the exclusive holding up of power is the great thing. That it doesn't demonize power, well, that's clearly indicated in the fact that God is described as powerful. Indeed, all-powerful, right? Over and again in the Bible. He's rightly called Lord and King throughout the Bible, and those are both uh, terms of, of power. In the Creed, each week, we Catholics profess our belief in God the Father Almighty, right? Therefore, power can't be a bad thing in itself. It's not just a tool of 
of domination and exclusion, etc. Moreover, power wielded by earthly rulers is also not wicked in itself. How do biblical authors see kings and other potentates? Well, they tend to see them as participating at their best in God's righteous rule of the universe, right? If God is the Lord, God's the king, well, then earthly kings at their best are participating in that righteous rule. And we find this idea beautifully exemplified in our second reading. Take it from Paul's first letter to Timothy. Here's what the apostle says, frankly enough. I ask that supplications, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be offered for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life. Now, I submit to you, those are not the words of someone who is demonizing political power, who's seeing power simply as a play of of domination. Without some authority structure, let's face it, without a political system geared to care for the common good, a society would simply implode. And in fact, you know, if we get rid of all kings and presidents and, and governors and authority figures, we'd have to invent them in some new form the next day. Well, Catholic social teaching has certainly followed the biblical prompt in this regard. Though it's certainly suspicious of authoritarian, you know, one-person arrangements, Catholic social teaching clearly advocates the legitimacy of exercising real political power and authority. The Church has nothing against that. It, it valorizes them the way Paul does in the letter to Timothy. You know, I find kind of fascinating that you look at, at post-war Europe, so Europe just after the Second World War, Many of the most successful political parties were those that embraced a kind of real partnership with uh, the churches. Think of the Christian democratic parties in Germany and Italy, good examples. Now, go back further in history. Think of a number of kings and queens who've been recognized as saints in the church. You know, Louis IX of France, Saint Louis, right, Saint Louis, Elizabeth of Hungary, Bridget of Sweden, Stanislaw of, of Poland, and there are lots of other examples, too. The church has recognized these civil leaders, these secular people, if you want, but as great saints. And let's press it further. Following Paul to Timothy and its own social teaching, the church in its liturgical books today compels us to pray at every Mass for civil leaders. It's very interesting to me, you know, when you're saying daily Mass and you come to the the prayers of the faithful, the Church does give some indications. Now, you can add your own prayers, of course, but it always tells us to pray for the, the Pope and bishops, so I always do that first. But the second thing the Church tells us to pray for are for civil leaders. And so whenever I, I'm saying Mass, uh, you know, with a small group, or and, and even in, in the parish, I'll add it if it's not in there. 
We pray for our, our president. We pray for our governor. We pray for our senators and congressmen. This, of course, has nothing to do at all with, with party politics. Like, I'm just going to pray for Republicans or Democrats. No, no matter who's in power, I mean, of course we're going to pray for them because we recognize the legitimacy of power. And following Paul, we, we pray for those who have this responsibility. More to it. The church has no real quarrel with economic power for its own sake. So I've been talking about political power so far, but there's economic power in any society. Think of the richest people, those who own the, the most the property, the own the biggest companies and corporations. Well, if you're a Nietzschean, you'll tend to see that all as a very kind of dark play of power, and, and the way Nietzsche is translated today would be seen as domineering and oppressive, etc. Well, the church doesn't share that view. It has no quarrel with economic power for its own sake. It, it recognizes how creative and courageous entrepreneurs can energize a society and lift many out of poverty. There's nothing wrong with, with economic power. Okay, that's the first part of my sermon today. And I want that to be clearly in place. As I say this, the Bible having said all of that about power and its legitimacy, is very alive to the ways that power is abused. And we find this in our readings for this weekend. Turn now to our first reading from the great prophet Amos. Amos is perhaps the greatest of the prophets of social justice. I mean, almost all the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, uh, you know, all the rest of them, Zechariah, etc. They they'll speak out against social injustice, but maybe of all of them, Amos is the strongest. That's why you know he was often cited by the civil rights activists in our country in the last century. Martin Luther King had a great affection for the prophet Amos, and, and I've said this many times before: the Hebrew prophets are practically unique in the ancient world. In their capacity to see through the illusions and pretensions of the powerful and to name the injustices that those mighty ones often perpetrate. Does that make sense? Now, that it got them in trouble goes without saying. Look at the stories of the prophets. They're in jail and they're excoriated. They're attacked by the, by the rich and powerful. Yeah, because they were naming their abuses. Listen now to Amos' indictment in our reading for today. It's beautiful in its concision and clarity. The powerful ones he has in his sights are not so much the politically, but the economically powerful. Listen now. Hear this, you who trample upon the needy and destroy the poor of the land. When will the new moon be over, you ask, that we may sell our grain, and the Sabbath, that we may display the wheat? Now, what's he talking about here? These kind of obscure references. Well, he's excoriating those who can't wait for the formal religious celebrations to be over, that they might get back to their exploitation and, and money-making. Because during these times, like when the new moon had appeared and during the time of Sabbath, people were not allowed to, to buy and sell, etc. So they're saying, like, let's get, let's get these religious things over with so we can get back to our work of exploitation. What do the economically powerful, listen now, when they are corrupt, what do they take of supreme value? not God and his worship and his justice, but their own 
economic advantage. And then Amos goes on. He imagines the wealthy saying, listen, we will diminish the ephah, add to the shekel, fix our scales for cheating. Well, they're they're pretty blunt about it, right? In other words, they're going to rig the system so as to bring in the greatest profits. You know, in a way, things were more, I suppose, straightforward in ancient times, talking literally about, you know, scales and weighing them and so on. But heck, today, just put it in a somewhat more sophisticated framework. Are there people on Wall Street who are doing this kind of thing, but in a more economically sophisticated way? Well, we all know it's true, don't we? People who are rigging the system, using the system to exploit, especially the poor. Listen finally now what he says. We will buy the lowly for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. Is human dignity at the center of your economic concerns? Look, if it is, if it is, there's nothing wrong with economic power. That's the church's take. If human dignity is at the center of your concern, there's nothing wrong with political power. We don't demonize them. Is the welfare of the, especially the poor, your first and last question before you make economic decisions? Fine, off you go. In fact, use the power you've got. If not, you come under the judgment of God. Let me sum it up, everybody. Catholic social teaching embraces economic and political power, but it wants them hemmed in by the ethical constraints and finally by the worship of God. If you just say power, political, and economic, Off you go. Do whatever you want. Well, of course, that's the very corruption the prophets are concerned about. But if you say economic and political power precisely for the purposes of God, good. Now exercise that power as much as you want. There's the subtle, balanced approach to power that we find in the Bible. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.